Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Joyce Harvey, registered nurse, author of I'm Fine, I'm with the Angels, a children's book of dying and survival of the spirit or soul. Joyce is a member of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Joyce's only child, Jennifer, died by suicide in 1995 while serving in the Marines. Good morning, Joyce, and welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Good morning, Gloria. Thank you for having me on the show. I so appreciate your willingness to come in and share with our listeners this most important topic of coping with a death through suicide. Could you tell us something about Jennifer, your daughter, and how she died? I sure and can. And what she was doing at the time? I sure can. Um, Jennifer, as you mentioned, was my only child, and she joined the Marine Corps because she wanted to serve our country, and she's always very serious about life and, and service, and uh, did very well in the Marine Corps. She was the undergraduate for her platoon. That's the highest honors you can get when you graduate from boot camp, and it's awarded for exceptional leadership and discipline and physical endurance and um, uh, you know, a team spirit, so to speak. And then she went on to graduate the top of her uh, military occupational school. Her specialty was administration. Uh-huh. So she did very, very well. She um, served the. Uh, she was serving stateside in the states, and she absolutely loved the Corps until she had a change in command, and she had a new sergeant who began picking on her. And I think he was jealous of Jen. She was bright and beautiful and has, had good leadership skills and was the honor graduate. And I think that that got under his skin. But Jennifer was also very sensitive. She was sensitive from the time she was born. And she didn't understand why the harder she worked to please the sergeant, the more he picked on her. And around the same time, she found out that her boyfriend, who had told her he was divorced, was in fact still married and planning to bring his wife and child to live with him on base. And they worked in the same office. So um, it, when she found that out, of course, she broke up with him, but he began stalking her and, and not allowing her to move on with her life. So between the harassment of the sergeant on a daily basis and the continued close working relationship with the ex-boyfriend in the same office, she began to slip into a deep depression and eventually took her own life. How long uh, had she been in the Marines when this? A year and a half. A year and a half. And were you aware of anything that was going on? I was aware that she was struggling with a new supervisor. I didn't know how deep her depression was, um, but I was aware that she was going through some difficult times, and I was trying to work with her, uh, helping her to locate um, a psychologist off base so that you know her conversations could be kept private, and uh, I was working with her on that. Uh-huh. So that that certainly would be an issue that uh, our conversations would need to be private, which is maybe some of the reason that people don't come forward when they're feeling... Right, right. She said that anything she shared with the psychologist on base, uh, her superiors could ask to see the records and could be privy to the conversations, which I don't think is fair. And so we helped her find somebody, um, a private practice that she could go to. Mm-hmm. So um, she was stateside, which is a little different than those folks who have people in the military that are right. overseas. 
Right, and, and there has been an increase in suicides in the military. Um, in fact, the uh, military suicide rate has uh, increased about 21% from 79 to 96, and it continues to rise. It's the third leading cause of, of death in the military. And I think, you know, some of the young men and women that are taking their lives in Iraq, I, I personally consider those to be casualties of war as well. You know, we don't know what they have to do over there. We don't know what they're faced with, and it, it's a casualty of war. Mm-hmm. So uh, how did the military handle, how do they handle suicide? I know that um, that after Jennifer's death, they did steep, uh, increase their um, suicide prevention classes, and I know the Army did put in um, a program because there were rises uh, of suicide in the Army as well, and they did put in a, a pretty in-depth suicide prevention program. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how did she die? What, what method? She um, shot herself. Yeah, because I was thinking one of the things about the military is that they do, they are carrying guns and they can't right. do a spontaneous, that's right, at the moment kind of thing. That's right. Which really makes it difficult. What? How does the military handle that? Do in terms of that, or uh, in terms of the fact that they do carry carry guns, and do they, if they feel like somebody's depressed, do they put them on another duty? Or yes, yes, they would if they if they had recognized that. Yes, mm-hmm. but they didn't recognize that with her. Evidently not. Yeah. Evidently not. Um, I, is she? I know she was crying out for help, but no one was listening. And how was she doing that? Um, she would she would ask to be transferred from that caustic environment. The supervisor was humiliating her, um, and, and, and if she Jennifer was a very strong um, person inwardly, but she was also very sensitive. And so, you know, if he would humiliate her and, and she would cry, um, he'd make her sit at her desk in view of everyone and would not let her go to the ladies' room or clean up her makeup or anything. So he was really, really harassing her, and she had requested um, a transfer a number of times, went over his head, uh, requesting a transfer. His boss told him to lay off of her. She was a good Marine, um, stopped picking on her, but um, he didn't really enforce it, so the, the harassment continued. Now, what happens to, I don't know the military, I know they have very different rules than the rest of the world. What happens to someone who is in charge of her and that when this all happens? Did he get any censure or... Well, that's a good question. I tried to find that out. They did do a JAG investigation and an NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigation. Um, uh, and I, I tried to find out exactly what happened. Um, I didn't really get any good answers. I, I don't think a whole lot happened, quite frankly, in terms of, of counseling these folks. Maybe just some counseling, but. Uh, now, how do you deal with your anger around that? How have you dealt with that? I assume you were angry around it. Yeah, you know, the anger didn't come right away. Um, the I, I was able to to keep the anger focused just on the few individuals and not against the entire military. I fortunately was able to separate out, you know, the behavior of a few versus you know, the the entire military. Um, and I was very angry with the boyfriend and very angry with Jennifer's supervisor. Um, but I was also very angry at myself. I, I took this loss very personally. I I felt like initially, and I've worked past that, but initially I felt that Jennifer's suicide was um, my grade card for being a mother, and I had flunked motherhood. I took it very personally. 
Uh, when we come back from break, let's uh, uh, start from there. And I'd also like to talk uh, with our, you know, to our listeners about the stigma of suicide and things that um, were said to you. Mm-hmm. or things that happened. And um, when Jennifer took her own life, I took that very personally. I felt I had failed in my role as a mother. I felt that um, Jennifer's suicide was my grade on my report card for being a mother, and I felt like I got an F, like I had failed. I couldn't see past the end of her life for a very long time to what I did do right um, while I was bringing her up. So I was I was very hard on myself. I took it very, very personally. How did you move on beyond that? It took a lot of of. of and how work. many years has it been just for the it, audience? It, yes, it'll be ten years this October. Okay. And I, I fortunately was surrounded by friends and family who often reiterated what a good mother I was, uh, and still am. You're still a good mom, and I, I think as I began to experience profound depression. Uh, after losing Jennifer, I would ask myself questions like, well, you know how depressed you are, Joyce. Is is this your mother's fault that you're this depressed? And I would say, no, it's because I lost Jennifer. That's why I'm depressed. Okay, so it's not your mother's fault. So is it possible that her depression and her suicide is not your fault? And I would say, okay, that makes sense. So I would really have to talk to myself and began to just basically accept I'm not God. I couldn't prevent this. I didn't cause it. And But it took a long time. It mm-hmm. took a long time. And when you're saying long time, tell, tell us a little bit about the journey. Oh, uh, several years before I could give up the, the guilt associated with suicide. And, and it's interesting, um, and, and doing some research on suicide, um, evidence suggests that those who experience the death of a loved one by suicide are more likely to experience different, perhaps more complicated grief reactions than those whose loved ones died from natural cause or from accidents. And I also found an interesting uh, article that said there were, there were two studies which specifically addressed the grief of parents of accidental and suicide deaths. And it found that parents of suicide listed guilt as the most distressing aspect of their grief, while parents whose child died from accidents or illness listed loneliness as the most distressing symptom. Oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, you know, when you say that um, about that it's even more difficult, I think, oh, my gosh, how could it be any worse? It is so awful. It's but so I hear awful. what you're saying. If, if we haven't had the experience, it's, it's so hard, as you know, to... Um, People really can't get get how hard it is to have a child die until they have it happen. Yes, that's right. They really can't get it. And and I I fully intellectually believe what you're saying, but emotionally I'm like, wow, how could it get any worse? You know, it's interesting. And in, in, in there was a Dr. Um, Vanderwall in 1989 who did a, a systematic review of literature, and he concluded that evidence suggests bereavement following suicide is qualitatively different from other causes of death in six ways. He said those bereaved by suicide experienced a prolonged search for motives, uh, uh, more often deny the cause of death, deal with more feelings of rejection by the deceased, um, raise religious questions more often, conceal the cause of death more often, and, of course, have a fear of uh, susceptibility to any hereditarily based suicide ideation. Mm-hmm. 
Very interesting. Those are those are great points. Well, t- could you talk a little bit? Uh, there were two things I'd like to talk about. One of them is the stigma, mm-hmm. and then I'd like to talk about the idea. Uh, what was that last comment you made? The last the last statement about suicide. You know um, some people list. worry that there's a genetic predisposition. Yeah, because that wasn't one of my concerns. Yeah, but, uh, the literature suggests that some right. because this was your only child. This is my only child. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know the idea that there there is cluster suicide and that we're now a suicide family and you know and sometimes therapists uh, promote that idea. Mm-hmm. We've, you've got to be careful now. Mm-hmm. Because you've mm-hmm. had one child kill themselves, it could be in your family now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and my belief as a therapist has always been this: let's let's say we are not a suicide family now, mm-hmm. because it has happened in our family. Now mm-hmm. we say it will never happen again, mm-hmm. and right. and we go in that direction rather than saying we're now at risk. Right. Because I believe that if we don't keep it a secret, which is part of what I think it is great about your coming on the show. And we let our families know how much it's hurt, and we let our families know that it is not a good thing to do. It moves us in a direction that this is not an alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of work with families on doing family histories and genograms with families who've had uh, suicide in the family, and the families. One of their motto, family motto has become, "We are not a family who takes this option." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that's. Uh, one way that you can go. Could you talk about the stigma a little bit? Yes. Um, what what I found is if uh, if I was talking with strangers and they asked if I had any children, and I said I had one who who died, and they if they pressed the issue, how did she die? Well, she took her own life. A couple of times, people say, "Oh, was she hooked on drugs and alcohol?" <laughs> And I mean, they automatically assumed, and, and, and no, you know, she wasn't. Right. She, she didn't drink. She was part of youth to youth and was against drugs, against alcohol. And I found myself being put into a defensive posture. And for that reason, um, I uh, tended to avoid offering at least how she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a complete stranger that you know you don't, you're not going to see again, and it doesn't matter. Um, I didn't necessarily go into it. I would say something, it was really difficult for me to talk about that, and I'd rather not. Mm-hmm. But I was amazed at that stigma. Oh, it must have been, she must have been, you know, hooked on drugs or alcohol. And that that, that really bothered me. It, it's interesting, too, that, that research um, shows that people who lose someone to suicide are perceived by society as more psychologically disturbed. In other words, the survivor, the person who's lost mm-hmm that they're less likable, more blameworthy, more ashamed, more in need of mental health care, and more likely to remain sad and depressed longer. And the way they did this study was they did um, uh, anecdotes of, uh, they they wrote up the same kind of uh, scenario with a parent who loses a child but changed the the um, manner of death and found that people's reactions were, were different towards the parent's who lost a child to suicide. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, I'll just say that my uh, teenage son, when he was killed with his cousin, everyone wanted to believe that they were on drugs and alcohol, even the mm-hmm. police, and mm-hmm. they did um, autopsies. And uh, we talked to the police after, and they were very surprised that they had their blood was clear of any drugs mm-hmm. or alcohol. They just mm-hmm. hydroplaned and hit a uh, mm-hmm. bridge and the car blew up. But... Um, you know, I think that people do want to find a reason for the death mm-hmm. because then it means that it won't happen to them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's some of that that's a little bit universal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've heard it in other realms, but I think what's interesting about suicide is that it's magnified. I think we hear it more, and uh, there are more more kinds of comments. What are some other things that that came up for you as far as the stigma went? Um, I think again, uh, sometimes parents seem to be blamed for kids that have gone awry, however that might be interpreted. And uh, I think that even if others weren't thinking that I was somehow to blame, I was thinking that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm saying that again, going back to that 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 bad mother syndrome. But it, but it's interesting too, and you would know more about this. The DSM. Um, diagnostic manual talks about yeah, the mental health manual. Yeah, talks about um, possible scenarios that can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, and they list the loss of a child as one. Mm-hmm. They also list suicide as one. So you know, I got a double whammy there in terms of having a critical incident and and having to work through that. Right, and and do you feel that I assume that having her your only child, only child, is another impacts right. your future? Exactly, I lost uh, not only her but but my future with grandchildren. I I remember when that hit me. It didn't hit me initially that I lost my grandchildren as well. Jennifer was nineteen and she wasn't married, um, but when it hit me, I would never have grandchildren. I grieved and grieved and still grieve over that because that's something I really longed for. So yeah, I. I you know, no one's grief is any worse than anyone else's, but I, I really feel like I got hit with a triple whammy. Not only did I lose a child, lost an only child, and it was to suicide. It's a big cross to bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we come back from break, um, I would like to you to talk to your the audience a little bit about how you take care of yourself because mm-hmm. you're up and running, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a pretty amazing thing after everything you've been through. Well, Joyce, I believe we have a call from Bob in California. Okay. Is Bob on? Good morning, Gloria. Hey, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. Welcome to our show. Thanks. Did you have a comment or a thought uh, for Joyce or I? Well, uh, you know, you as you know, I, I know you, and, and I've done work with uh, uh, survivors of suicide with mm-hmm. Compassion Friends since 1988. And uh, one of the comments is that, you know, the... the and your daughter, um, could you just say a little bit about your childhood? Yeah. Erin was uh, 19, and she uh, uh, she uh, completed a suicide with uh, alcohol and uh, her uh, antidepressant medication mixed in, in uh, 1987. And, and it was, uh, as... Everybody uh, knows that's experienced this, uh, or any loss of any child actually is, is it's a, an incredibly painful, uh, uh, and, and ongoing experience. It never goes away. It gets, you know, it gets better, but it never goes away. And so, one of the things that, that, uh, that I've done, and, and, and it really helps a lot, uh, just like uh, Joyce's book, uh, I'm sure helped her. I started working with a Group called Teen Line, which is a, a suicide prevention uh, group out of Cedar Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and we do outreach to schools and to uh, school personnel, police, fire, first responders. Uh, a lot of work on uh, recognizing and dealing with uh, uh, young 
people who uh, are at risk of, of completing a suicide or attempting a suicide. And, and uh, it, it has really helped me deal with uh, what, I've, what I've gone through as a parent. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Joyce is dealing with is doing something outreach too with TAPS, right, Joyce? The, That's right. Mm-hmm. And what does that stand for? The Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. It's a nonprofit organization for uh, anyone who's lost a loved one in the military. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, in from June of oh. Three to June of '04, I was their director of peer support, and I worked with all the, the families of the casualties in Iraq, Afghanistan, and would um, work with them to match them with a peer mentor, someone who lost a, a child or a spouse or a sibling in a similar way, so that it, but, but who was further down the road um, to help them to deal with their grief. And then I would hook them up with local bereavement support groups like Compassionate Friends or widows or widower. Um, right. So this, so Bob and um, uh, you guys are doing things. This is a little further down the road, right? That's right. Then it would be for our uh, people who are maybe a year or two out of grief. Right. Yeah. yeah. I so encourage people to to do their own healing work first and not to leap into something um, uh, too fast. We have to do our own grief work before we can help someone else, and we owe that to ourselves. And as Bob said, it's it's not losing a child. We never get over it. Uh, the pain becomes more manageable. We learn to carry it with us and control it a little more. But in those first couple of years, it controls us. And so it's really important to do our our grief work and to allow ourselves time to heal, regardless of what society um, says the time frame should be. Yeah, Bob, the, the, you got the, any thoughts about that? Taking care of yourself, how you did it? Well. To me, uh, I entered uh, into uh, Compassionate Friends about five months after my daughter died, and, and well, I think the first three meetings I couldn't even say my name, but it really uh, helped me to be involved with people that had a similar, you know, similar experience as far as losing a child. Now, you know, we all know that there are certain deaths that have a stigma attached to it. Uh, uh, you know, not not necessarily a real stigma, but a stigma in people's minds. You know, what kind of parent could you have been if your child committed suicide, or if you backed over them in the driveway, or if they drowned while you're in the house? Those kind of deaths that that uh, are, are tragic uh, are also you know are stigmatized. So that's part of the healing process, and it, and it was good to be around uh, other people. And and Joyce is absolutely right. The time frame that society or quote, professionals put on this, uh, uh, present company accepted, Gloria, uh, you know, put on, on the healing process or, or, or uh, the grieving process is just, you know, it, it's a personal thing. It's a very personal, individual thing, even, even in, in married couples. Now, Bob, tell me something. Do you think that there's any difference between a guy uh, and uh, a woman in the grieving process or with this, or did you feel any, any different expectations that you... Well, well, I think society does. You know, you go back to work, you know, how's your wife doing? And they never ask you how you're doing, for one thing. But, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, one of the workshops that I do with Compassionate Friends is called For Women Only, which is uh, explaining to women the way uh, men grieve and how they see women's grief. So, yeah, there's a there's obviously a, 
uh, a big difference uh, in Was there anything the specific to suicide that you felt? Joyce was talking about that she felt that she was a bad mother. I think mothers kind of take a hit, or in their own minds maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in every situation is different. In my situation, my daughter uh, basically uh, from the time she was uh, 12 lived with me and didn't speak to her uh. mother. Uh, so you were kind of the mom in the situation, or the yeah, primary and, caregiver, and, I call it. I think the, the primary caregiver is the one that takes, right. you know, feels a huge hit. Make it well. right. You know, dad can't kiss it and make it well type of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's, a similar, it's a similar process. You feel, you feel inadequate and you feel uh, uh, totally uh, devastated in the sense that, you know, you should have been able to somehow make this mm -hmm. work and make it right, and, and that's just not... It's not it's not logical and it's not correct, but in your mind it is. Oh yes, I, I was a single parent too. Jennifer's father and I divorced when she was only a couple months old, and um, and I remember saying, you know, I I I never let her out of my sight when she was little. I always kept my eyes on her. If I couldn't keep my eyes on her, put her in a playpen or a cribs, you know, so she'd be protected. And got her immunization shots and did everything I could to protect her. And then this happens, and I couldn't protect her from herself. I couldn't protect right. her from the military, and it's just it—it it, it was such a, a feeling of disempowerment, um, uh, just like a parent should be able to protect their own child. Exactly. Well, and one of the things that happens that after a while, when you've dealt with this as long as we have, you learn that uh, when young people or anybody, for that matter, takes their own life. They're trying to end their pain, and it, it's a, that's right. it's a very real pain, uh, not physical that's right. as we know it, but uh, a very painful existence that they're in. And, you know, they used to do things like drugs and alcohol to self-medicate, et cetera, mm -hmm. and they find right. they get to the point where they, they just feel that there's no end. Unfortunately, and, and especially in young people, um, they consider a, a, a permanent solution to a, a temporary problem, mm -hmm. and they don't they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. I actually had a friend who did um, uh, a fellow colleague who did a, a study. His dissertation was on people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and about eight people out of like 250 lived. And uh, he inter interviewed them, and every single one of them was sorry on the way down. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I, my my understanding from the young people that I've worked with that have made attempts and not been successful is that they're glad they're still here and and uh, that uh, you know they 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 really part of them wanted to die but they really you know didn't want to and when it got right down to it you know they were hoping that they would be saved. They now want to, they want the pain to go away. That's what they want. They want yeah. the pain to go away. Exactly. One of the things that I'm very interested in, and I talked a little bit about it in my introduction, is the fact how we treat families where there has been a suicide. It is just incredible the way we romp in on them. But we've got to run in, and I know you're involved with it, Bob, so you're probably sensitive to it. We've got to run in, and you too, Joyce, with TAPS. We've got to run in and do suicide prevention in that school so there's not a cluster suicide. But we don't even think about this family that we're running over. Exactly, and, and and well, one of the things that we that I, I really do a lot of work with uh, LAPD, LA School Police, Riverside County uh, sheriffs is their and school resource officers is the first responder aspect. Mm -hmm. um, they can, you know, as, as I tell them, the thing that they say at the time mm -hmm. uh, can be you know comforting and it'll be remembered, but or if it it's painful cruel. and not handled well, 
it will mm-hmm. never be forgotten. It will just mm-hmm. be an added part of the pain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just people, and people don't know how to deal with, with the death of a child to begin with or the death of anybody. Uh, you know, they're not really trained for it. But at the same time, when it's a first responder situation mm-hmm. on suicide, it can be devastating if they mm-hmm. don't handle it well. Right. That's right. Listen, Bob, thanks a lot for calling in on the show, and we're uh, just about ready to come up on break, so uh, take care of yourself down there oh, in Southern California. All right. And you guys keep up the good work, too. Yeah, yeah you too, Bob. Thanks for all Thank the work you. you do. Bye-bye. Bye. So, yeah, that was interesting talking to Bob. What did you get from that? Anything different for you? Or oh, I, I agree with him, and you were asking about taking care of ourselves. One of the best ways a bereaved parent can take care of themselves is to, to go to a support group to be with others who truly understand the pain and the devastation and the, the overwhelming, all-encompassing grief. Um, going to a support group and hearing others feeling the same way normalizes our grief. We're having, we're having normal reactions to an abnormal situation. And I've never considered myself a group person. Prior to Jennifer's death, I would not have chosen a support group for anything because I'm so private. But when I could not find the understanding, even in my own family, um, and and then spent time with um, bereaved parents, uh, and, and they just nodded their heads at everything I said or everything they said, I nodded my head. And don't get me wrong, my family loves me, would do anything for me, but they didn't understand the all-encompassing aspect of, of losing Jennifer and how I felt my life was over. Okay, uh, we're coming up on our final break, and uh, one of the things Joyce and I said during break is uh, the, one of the big messages we want to give you all out there is that we've made it, and so can you. Mm-hmm. Talk to our audience a little bit about taking care of themselves and how you've done it. Yes, yes. I, I truly believe that there is a part of us that knows what we need to do to heal and what makes us comfortable um, and what helps us to feel closer to our child. Um, those who have not lost a child may think it's strange or morbid to wear a piece of clothing of the child or jewelry, but there's nothing morbid or strange about that. Every bereaved parent does in some way uh, wear something of their child or keep it close to them, and that's a way that we can that we can remain close to our child, um, keeping their belongings in in their bedroom for maybe longer than what the non-grieving public understands. Um, we're the only ones who can make those decisions. And I, I tell people, grieving parents, you know, if what you want to do is not illegal, immoral, or unethical, and if it doesn't hurt you or anyone else, then do it if it helps your healing journey. Oh, I like that, yeah. Yes, we, uh, we need to trust that, that still quiet voice within us that, that directs us in our healing journey and, and, and tells us what, you know, what to do and what would feel better. One of the things that, that, that helps me a lot and helped me, especially those, those first five, six, seven, eight years, uh, is writing. I've always, I've always written to process. I've kept a journal my whole life. Whenever I needed to process anything significant, I would write about it. And so I spent a lot of time writing after Jennifer died. I've, I've written a book um, about losing her, which isn't published yet, but I've also written uh, stories that have been published in Chicken Soup for the Soul. One's in Chicken Soup for the Grieving Soul. It's called I Don't Want to Walk Without You, and it's about wearing Jennifer's military shoes on her birthday. She and I wore the exact same shoe size, so you talk about soulmates, <laughs> S-O-L-E or S-O-U-L, Jenny and I were soulmates, and then I also had one published in uh, Chicken Soup for the Unsinkable Soul, 
so writing um, is is one of the ways that I that I worked with my grief, and I think another too, in addition to trusting that that inner knowing, is to for especially for the newly bereaved, is to take life one day at a time, or when you're very newly bereaved, take it ten minutes at a time if you have to. Sometimes when we look at a future without our child and a future of experiencing that raw pain we feel those first couple of years, it becomes overwhelming. And we need to ask ourselves questions like, can can I do this for another 10 minutes? Okay, I can do it for another 10 minutes. Bring it down to bite-sized chunks uh, of coping. If I looked at my life too far down the road, it was overwhelming um, and I didn't think I could do it, but I could back it down to doable chunks of time. Mm-hmm. The one day at a time kind of thing? Yes, exactly. Or one minute at a time at times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, make sure that you're eating, drinking, and sleeping. Mm-hmm. And sleeping. And maybe going for a walk around the block. Absolutely. Grief is very, very exhausting. I read an article that said that one hour of grief, one hour of grief work, has the same physical equivalent on the body as eight hours of hard physical labor. So one of the most important things we need to do when we're bereaved is to get rest, to sleep as much as we can, you know, obviously and still be functional, um, and to do what we need to do to get good quality sleep because grief is exhausting. We need to cut back on our commitments. I cannot do the same level of activity uh, that I did before Jennifer died. So get rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a, a caller now. We've got a caller, Carol. Is Carol there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Hi Carol. Hi, Carol. Welcome to our show with Thank Joyce Harvey and Gloria Horsley. And where are you from, Carol? Um, I'm from uh, Florida, and I'm right now I'm in Maine. Great. Um, oh, you're coming from Maine. Nice up there, huh? It is beautiful up here. <laughs> and I'm calling basically because I wanted to tell you about a wonderful resource through Compassionate Friends that we have every Friday night. Um, it's a chat Carol, room. can I stop you for one second? Sure. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your child that died? Sure, I can. Um, my son, Keith, um, Lore, died in 1999. Um, he just um, was very depressed, like your first speaker. Very, very similar situation. Um, job stress, um, on a boss that basically um, didn't have a lot of communication with Keith. And Keith was expected to do an awful lot. Um, and he started suffering with depression, and we had no understanding of his depression because we didn't know the signs of depression at the time. Mm-hmm. So you're uh, kind of the same uh, things that happened to Jennifer. Exactly, exactly. I, when I was listening to her story, I kept thinking it sounded so similar to Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you, we're kind of short on time, so could you tell us a little bit about your resource? Yeah. Yes, I would love to. Um, it's um, every Friday night from 8 to 9, and that's Eastern Standard Time. And you can find out more about it by going to the Compassionate Friends website. And I can give you the address of the chat room, but it's very long, and I think some people might not be able to get it. Would you like me to give it to you? Sure, you can give it. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's W W w dot compassionate friends dot org forward slash capital c h a t forward slash small c h a t an underscore entrances 
dot s h t m l. But I think it would be easier if you just yeah. went on www. That is Texas. a long one, but some of our real computer savvy people, I'm sure, could pick that up quite, yes. quite quickly. Yes, and I just don't want to discourage anyone. It's very right. easy to get into the chat room. So do you have uh, any other question or comment for us before we close the show? Yes. Um, the only other thing I'd like to say to you, Gloria, is one of the comments that you made on on uh, previously was that you said that you you had other families that were, um, if you talked to your family about suicide, then other family, then other members in your family wouldn't take their lives. But we have to remember that suicide is not a choice. Suicide is brought on because of depression. Mm-hmm. And so because you talk to your child about suicide, that doesn't mean you're going to prevent a suicide death. Mm-hmm. Well, that is true. However, keeping it a secret uh, is also an issue for a yes, lot of people. I agree with that. I don't think yes. anyone should keep suicide an issue, but I, I think a lot of people think that suicide is a choice, and it is not a choice. It's brought on by depression mm-hmm. or another mental illness of some sort. Right. And um, I just wanted to make sure that other people don't say that, you know, because my one child died by suicide, then it's my fault that my other child died by suicide. Because uh, I appreciate that comment. Well, thanks for calling in, Carol. Okay. And uh, hopefully people will tune into your chat room, and uh, we will be uh, talking to you later. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Joyce, uh, we're coming up... Uh, in about one minute to ending the show, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or say? I so appreciate you having you on the show. You are just a, a wonderful guest and uh, have so much information. Well, thank you. I, I just want to say to listeners who are bereaved parents that the pain does get more manageable. There will be a time when you'll laugh and smile again, even though I didn't believe that when people told me. Um, you know, in those early years, you'll laugh and smile again. But um, happiness can come back into your life. It's come back into mine. And um, we can do this. We can do it together. Um, as we always say, we need not walk alone. And, and I know you repeat that as well. So um, it can be done. We can go forward together. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. And it's time to close. And, again, Joyce Harvey, thanks so much. You've been a great guest. And together we have tackled a difficult topic discussing not only the stigma of death by suicide, but how you can go on, survive, and thrive, and do fantastic things. Joyce and I have done it, and so can you. Joyce Harvey, bereaved parent, registered nurse, author of I'm Fine, I'm with the Angels. Thank you again for being on the show. You're welcome. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.